0: Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On this Labor Day special, a history of the role of the AFL-CIO Union Confederation in U.S. foreign policy, supporting wars, coups, and attempted coups. Labor's foreign
1: policy got worse in the 60s because in response to the Cuban Revolution... They intensified their efforts to control labor throughout Latin America, and you also had their participation in the Brazilian coup in 1964, and then of course in Chile in 1973. All of this has been documented pretty strongly. This is not speculation.
0: And how the new organization, La is pressing the AFL-CIO to be transparent and accountable to its members and to the American public.
2: While they say that they're for an independent labor movement, You can't be for an independent labor movement when you're taking millions from the U.S. government. Uh, In fact, the budget of the Solidarity Center is almost as large as the budget of the staff of the AFL-CIO.
0: All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, ground onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital for September 2nd, 2022. I'm Esther Iveram with our special show for Labor Day. Chris Smalls, president of the Amazon Labor Union, is calling for demonstrations Monday, September 5th in Manhattan outside the homes of both the CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, and the founder of Amazon, Jeff Bezos. Despite votes by workers at Amazon and Starbucks to join a union, both Schultz and Bezos are employing delays and illegal union-busting tactics to avoid negotiating a union contract. The obstinance of both these billionaires is, in a sense, a testament to the strength of this new era in labor organizing, which includes the landmark April 2022 yes vote by Amazon workers on Staten Island, New York, wins for workers at 220 Starbucks stores, and wins at Apple, Google, and Trader Joe's. But on the other hand, not only are Starbucks and Amazon not negotiating with workers, these workers face headwinds from the Federal Reserve and its announced policy to fight inflation by increasing interest rates and increasing unemployment. After Fed Chair Jerome Powell announced his policies of interest rate hikes on August 26th, Chief Economist for the Groundwork Collective, Rakeen Maboud, was one in a course saying that aggressive rate hikes won't address the root causes of inflation, which include corporate profiteering. She said, quote, mass unemployment is not the path forward to a healthy and inclusive economy. Let's be clear. Aggressive rate hikes aim to bring down prices by increasing unemployment. Fed Chair Powell is ready to throw workers under the bus to save the economy, but we are the economy, end quote, she said. (music) Meanwhile, a new study by Americans for Tax Fairness reveals that as Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz is violating the labor rights of workers and paying them low wages, his personal fortune grew by nearly $1 billion during the pandemic. The study adds, quote, over the last decade, his wealth has increased by about six hundred and forty thousand dollars a day on average or more money in a single day than most of his store employees are likely to make from Starbucks in a lifetime. End quote. The report also documents that as of early August 2022, Starbucks had racked up two hundred and seventy six unfair labor practice charges. In the mail delivery business, U.S. postal workers are sounding the alarm about the continued effort of Trump-appointed Postmaster General Louis DeJoy to consolidate post offices across the U.S. as part of his controversial plan to reshape the public mail agency. The publication Government Executive reported that more than 200 post offices and other U.S. Postal Service facilities will be impacted, possibly within weeks. DeJoy's plan includes cutting 50,000 U.S. Postal Service jobs in the coming years and closing numerous post office locations. And in higher education, Chantel James reports on a victory for workers here in the nation's capital.
3: 468 days after initial demands were made, the Staff Union of American University achieved the victory of a tentative contract with the administration. This ensures the fair wages and greater benefits they've been pleading for. The actions of the union culminated in a five-day labor strike by about 550 staff members held during the welcome week at the university.
4: Um, We're protesting here for better wages and better benefits for all of our staffers here. People have to pay a lot of money for health care. We're asking for better health care benefits. Many people are just asking to be able to afford to live here in the city. A lot of people have to commute over 90 minutes away just to, you know, make ends meet. And people here just want to not have to choose between paying rent or buying their groceries.
3: That was an interview with an American University staff member with Salary Transparent Street. Members of the freshman class, walked out of this year's opening convocation in droves to show solidarity with the demands of the union. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James.
0: In Black Lives Matter news, Columbus, Ohio residents want answers after police there shot an unarmed 20-year-old Black man, Donovan Lewis, as he was in bed. Police officer Ricky Anderson shot Lewis within one second after opening Lewis's bedroom door. Then as Lewis laid motionless dying, cops handcuffed him and commanded him to, quote, put your hands behind your back now and stop resisting, end quote. Lewis was then transported to the hospital where he was pronounced dead. Los Angeles radio host Dominique DePrima is using her platform to draw attention to the case of Andrew Joseph III, a Tampa, Florida teen who was killed in 2014 when he was struck by traffic when trying to get home after being left by county sheriffs on the side of a major highway. Joseph's family said that their case against the county, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, and other parties is set for trial September 12th. And the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, Chokwe Lumumba, is appealing for direct federal assistance as residents continue to lack running water after a flood disabled the city's water treatment facility. Over decades, funding for vital services in the majority Black city have been withheld by the Republican state government, which also forbids Jackson and other municipalities from raising their own funds from tax revenue. And finally, in culture and media, the U.S.-NATO proxy war against Russia looms large in coverage of the death of the Soviet Union's last president, Mikhail Gorbachev, with U.S. and European media outlets praising Gorbachev as the man who brought down the Iron Curtain, ended the Cold War, and negotiated nuclear deterrence treaties, many or most of which the U.S. has since pulled out of. Meanwhile, Russian and left analysts characterized Gorbachev as naive for beginning a process that ultimately destroyed the Soviet Union, impoverished the Soviet people. And turned over publicly owned resources to capitalist oligarchs. And some consider him naive for believing US and European promises to not expand NATO one inch east as it has right up to what is now Russia's border, fomenting the current crisis and war in Ukraine. In climate, a demonstration to stop the controversial Mountain Valley Pipeline, which would carry frack gas through West Virginia and Virginia and across the Appalachian Trail, is being held on Thursday, September 8th, 2022 at 5 p.m. at 101 New Jersey Avenue in Northwest D.C. As a condition for supporting the Inflation Reduction Act, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia reportedly secured a side deal that would finish the 300-mile project, which was stopped due to numerous violations of environmental laws. The Stop MVP Coalition and the People vs. Fossil Fuels Coalition are spearheading the rally, dubbed Appalachian Resistance Comes to D.C. And last but certainly not least, in D.C., the Diverse City Fund grant-making organization is inviting D.C. organizations to apply to their fall grant. The fund is supporting work led by people of color that is engaged in mobilizing, advocacy, organizing, healing, liberation, and social justice. The deadline to apply is September 30th. More information is at diversecityfund.org. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Eviram. Well, in April of this year, On the Ground reported on the formation of the Labor Education Project on AFL-CIO International Operations, or LAPAL, which wants the AFL-CIO, the largest union confederation in the U.S., to reject the $75 million it's receiving in funding from the National Endowment for Democracy a U.S. government-affiliated organization, which is implicated in destabilization of governments around the globe. The project says that the AFL-CIO needs to open its books and disclose the extent of its relationship with the NED. Well, on August 28th, two of La Powell's organizers, sociologist Kim Sipes and labor journalist Steve Zeitzer, discussed in an online forum the troubled history of the AFL-CIO taking money from the CIA and other government agencies for international operations around the world, and the AFL-CIO's support for coups in Chile, El Salvador, Guatemala, Indonesia, Ukraine, and attempted coups in Venezuela and Cuba. We start with Kim Sipes. Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Purdue University Northwest.
1: The way Steve and I have worked this is I'm going to start out and talk about the AFL-CIO's foreign policy, or actually labor's foreign policy, and I'll lay some things out. And then Steve's going to tell us about LaPayo, the new effort to change the AFL-CIO's foreign policy. So uh, with that, I'm going to begin. as I assume most of you know, labor has had a foreign policy. It's not often uh, put out very clearly. There's a lot of misconceptions and things like this. So I have been doing work on this since 1983, looking at this, their operations in the U.S. and around the world. In 2010, I brought out a book called AFL-CIO's Secret War Against Developing Country Workers: Solidarity or Sabotage, in which I look at the at labor's foreign policy. One of the things where there is confusion, I mean, first of all, a lot of workers, and in fact, I think most of the leaders of the labor movement don't even know of labor's foreign policy. It's never been clearly brought out and explicated to people. It's hidden, they've lied about it, things such as this. Uh, for those that know somewhat about it, maybe you've heard about, you heard about the AFL-CIO's involvement, in the coup in Chile, you might have some idea about it. But most people who, who know about the uh, labor's foreign policy think it began in the late 40s in the war against communism, blah, blah, blah. The reality is, no, it's much longer shaping of this. It goes back to the late 1890s. Sam Gompers made a couple of statements against the pending Spanish-American War, but once the war began, both in Cuba and in the Philippines, Gompers signed on to it. He also supported U.S. uh, efforts in Mexico during the Mexican Revolution, which, as I assume everyone knows, happened before the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. He supported U.S. policies in uh, World War I, and then, of course, after the Bolshevik Revolution, was resolutely opposed to the Soviet Union and any type of, quote, communism or socialism or whatever. Now, it was never a uh, rational analysis of these different movements or anything like that. It was sort of an ideological reaction. But Gompers was president for 37 of the first 38 years of the AFL, so his presence was overwhelming, set the stage for this. Now, after World War II, All right. So first of all, during the war, as I'm sure most of us know, the labor movement had given a no strike policy. But starting about 43, when the war started to turn in the U.S. and its allies favor, you started having workers start striking and going against the program on the shop floor. I don't know if you know this, but there were more people that were injured on the shop floor in the U.S. before D-Day then were injured in combat these are US troops not Soviet troops obviously but anyway as the war proceeded you see workers refusing to accept this management domination fighting and stuff like this which led after the war within the first year after the war massive strikes across the country we know about the steel the auto workers and the meat packers uh, national strikes there were the teamsters went out all in all something like 116 million days of production were lost in 1946 okay in reaction to this uh the republicans were able to take over congress in november 46 they passed the taft hartley act which basically banned this it also as we all know had the anti-communist provision things like this a terrible attack on the labor movement which much of the conservative members of the of the cio did not fight including philip murray and especially walter reuther so this is a time when the left was kicked out of the cio and it was a time when the anti-communist war was spread around the world and labor joined this and you see this in 1954 they helped overthrow the democratically elected government in guatemala Well, the labor's foreign policy got worse in the 60s because in response to the Cuban revolution, they intensified their efforts to control labor throughout Latin America. And you also had their participation in the Brazilian coup in 1964, and then of course in Chile in 1973. All of this has been documented pretty strongly. This is not speculation and credit goes mostly to who I think many of you might've known, Uh, Fred was a plumber out of San Jose who first revealed this as early as 1974 and and continued on throughout his life in fighting the AFL-CIO's foreign policy. During the 80s, we were able to raise a lot of interest in this. And eventually it became a factor in the 1995 election to succeed uh, Lane Kirkland and then his Secretary General, uh, Tom. God, I'm blanking on Tom's last name. But anyway, he was only there for a brief time. And J- John Sweeney, a Service Employees International Union, came out and said he was going to do away with the AFL CIO's regional co- operations. Okay. Now, by the way, one thing I forgot to include was one of the things as as people have learned about the afl and then the afl cio's foreign policy was that they've assumed that it was done from the outside whether the u.s government the white house the state department or the cia my research over the years and i like to say i've been doing this for almost 40 years is that no the foreign policy comes from within labor not from without Okay, this is pretty much the dominant view today, that it comes from within. And like I say, all of these things happened during this time. However, Sweeney did get elected in 95. And by 1997, he ended the Asian American Free Labor Institute. He ended Afield, the American Institute for Free Labor Development in Latin America, and the African American Labor Center, AALC, in Africa. He replaced it with something initially called the American Center for International Labor Solidarity, ACILs, or more commonly, the Solidarity Center. And they've always been a bit dicey on how they refer to the Solidarity Center. They claim it's affiliated with the the AFL-CIO, and that's bullshit. They're a wholly owned subsidiary. They're controlled by the labor movement both fred redmond the, the secretary of treasurer and liz schuler the president of the afl cio have been head of the solidarity center and have worked with the national endowment for
2: democracy
1: okay so i have to talk about ned the national endowment for democracy because that's who's running a lot of this work today so in 1983 after the revelations about the CIA and their secret wars and and, uh, also labor's involvement, that freedom-loving Democrat Ronald Reagan decided to put forth what became known as the National Endowment for Democracy, or NED. Now, the way they've set this up is NED is basically controlled by four different operations. One is the National Democratic Institute, which is the international wing of the Democratic Party it is joined by the international republican institute again the foreign wing of the uh, republican party it is joined by the international wing of the u.s chamber of commerce supposedly the archenemy of the afl-cio domestically but they work together internationally and then the solidarity center so these four groups are the mainstay of the national endowment for democracy now when you talk about the national endowment for democracy we have to look at this and have some nuance they claim to be promoting democracy around the world their rhetoric is is pretty amazing what you have to realize is that there are two types of democracy Now, the type that we've all grown up with is the one person, one vote. If you're affected, you get to have your say, things such as this. This is only one type of democracy. It's been labeled popular democracy or bottom-up democracy or grassroots democracy. That's the type we've been told about. The other type is something we're not educated about, and that's the top-down or constrained or polyarchal democracy, which is a top-down form of democracy this is a form of democracy where basically ideas get put forth before the elite before a limited number of people who then okay it and then allow people to vote on but it's not the same it's very different than the bottom up so that uh what you have happen is a constrained democracy not that people are getting to address these issues as they see them but as the elites see them and then only with the elite permission do they get to address this the NED is promoting this top down this polyarchal democracy as though it's bottom-up democracy and so they're going around the world and attacking different countries they're operating in over 90 countries around the world but what they're promoting is this top-down democracy again as though it was from bottom up so it's a very confusing thing and unless you understand that their rhetoric becomes very very uh, problematic so the solidarity center has worked with them they're helping create the strategy the overall viewpoint and then the solidarity center will apply to the ned for grants to pass on to groups around the world and they are operating in over 60 countries around the world now this is a solidarity center the ned is actually operating in over 90 but the but the solidarity center is working in over 60 of them they have never they have never given an honest report about their operations why they're in particular countries what they're doing who they're working with what their purpose is etc they have never given this to any leaders in the labor movement other than those involved in foreign policy. So, this is a small group of people who are running labor's foreign policy. They're acting in the name of American workers, yet not telling American workers anything about it. Their money comes from the overwhelmingly from the US government, over 90% of their funding comes through the state department and the national endowment for democracy etc so working people generally do not and particularly union members don't know what they're doing or why or how much or anything and they have no control over this this is a top-down operation and it's like i say it's operating around the world and where we know for sure of their operations is in venezuela in 2002 there was the coup attempt against uh, hugo Chavez, that fortunately failed but the ned was in there supporting that they didn't take a a leading role in the coup but they were supporting it they were lying about the involvement of the oil workers a guy named fidel I'm blanking on his name, I'm sorry. But anyway, he was the leader of the Oil Workers Union who was one of the leaders of the coup attempt. And they lied and hid about that and denied that ever since. The reality is they knew immediately that the labor movement was involved and they hid this, et cetera. Now, the problem for activists is that the NED is more sophisticated than the old institutes. The institutes were all evil. There was nothing good about A-Field or the others. NED has done some work that at least is not bad. I won't necessarily say it's good, but it's, it's not, not necessarily bad. So that we have to look, and we can't have a blanket overview of them. We have to be more nuanced and look at particular cases such as that. So this has been going on for years. Like I say, both Fred Redman and Liz Schuler have been involved in uh, the Solidarity Center and working with the NED. So there's no question about this and that uh, I'm going to turn it over to Steve now to talk about some of our efforts that, uh, to challenge this.
0: You are listening to professor Kim Sipes and labor journalist, Steve Zeitzer. This is on the Ground's Labor Day special. Stay with us. Breaking rocks out here on the chain
5: gang. Breaking rocks and serving my time Breaking rocks out here on the chain gang Cause it done convicted me a crime Hold it steady right there while I hit it Well, I reckon that ought to get it been working And working But I still got so terribly far to go I committed crime, Lord, I needin' Crime of being hungry and poor. I left the grocery store man breathing when they caught me robbing his store. I hold it steady right there while I hit it. Well, I reckon that oughta get it. Been working and working, but I still got so terribly far to go. I heard the judge say five years On chain gang you gonna go I heard the judge say five years later. labor I heard my old man scream, Lord, no!" know Hold it right there while I hit it Well, I reckon that ought to get it Been working and working But I still got so tired My sweet honey, baby I'm gonna break this chain off the run I'm gonna lay down somewhere shady Lord, I sure am hard in the sun Hold it right there while I hear it Well, I reckon that ought to get it been working And working But a steel got so terribly far to go
2: When we talk about the AFLCIO, or the formation of the AFLCI, we have to recognize that it came on the heels of the defeat of. With fascists, but also the rise of uh pro-capitalist, pro-imperialist trading and bureaucracy in the United States. That uh even though the uh, Gompers had been in favor of he had been in favor of our intervention in Puerto Rico and the Philippines, bringing democracy there, the uh, the AFLCIO was a culmination, a coming together of anti-communist union officials, the government, and corporations who wanted a pro-capitalist, pro-imperialist trading federation. So the formation of the AFL-CIO was central to that. It purged communist, militant, socialist out of the unions throughout the United States. And then as a premise of the, of the Federation said they would support US foreign policy. So they supported militarization, the United States efforts to militarize the, the world and set up bases around the world. And the leadership of the AFL-CIO, not just Meany, but uh, Albert Shanker, and many other officials, were actively involved all, all around the world with Irving Brown and others who set up anti-communist unions in Turkey, Turkish. They set up unions in France. They set up unions in Japan. Uh, they set up pro-corporate unions around the world. They also supported Zionism. They, along with the Uni- uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, supported the formation of Israel. But the United States worked with the Histadrut, the Israeli Trading Federation, to do training in Africa in the uh, 60s. And they supported uh, the apartheid South Africa, the, the AFL-CIO where they supported Bootha Lacy. So uh, this history is not known by uh, US trade unions. And that's one of the reasons we formed the labor education project in AFL-CIO International Operations, because this history is unknown to most workers, most trade and is critical to understanding the role of the AFL-CIO and other unions around uh, in the United States. And we fought at the last uh, convention of the CWA for a resolution around this issue and were uh, attacked by the bureaucrats and they, they passed a resolution supporting the role of the AFL-CIO internationally. The CFA, CWA was involved, Bernie the, Bernie, the president, former president with the CIA in Latin America, uh, supporting right-wing unions and coups in Latin America and Brazil and other countries. So uh, I want to get into some histories of of the AFL-CIO. One of the things now that the AFL-CIO is involved in, and all the unions, including my own, is supporting the the war in Ukraine as bringing democracy. Uh, That's what they argue. They're they're fighting for democracy for the Ukrainians. And while I'm opposed to the invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia, the fact of the matter is the United States was involved in a, a coup in 2014 and uh, funded by the uh, National Endowment for Democracy. And and, uh, we trained right-wing trade unionists. They are quote-unquote trained. We supported the privatization of Ukraine and also in other Eastern European countries. The United States saw the collapse of the Soviet Union as a vehicle to take over, uh, privatize, and uh, capture the wealth of these countries. So The AFL CIO, Randy Weingarten, and others went to uh, Ukraine and uh, supported the coup and were involved in uh, supporting also fascists. The United States has been involved in supporting fascists in Ukraine and in other countries around the world. But in Ukraine, they they trained them. Even uh, Haaretz, the Israeli publication, protested the uh, support by Israel for arming fascists in Ukraine. So, this privatization policy of the AFL CIO through the National Endowment for Democracy on a global level, continues around the world. And of course, one of the results of the Chilean coup, which the AFL-CIO supported, was to put in Pinochet, who then privatized the pension system and other public services in Chile and brought in privatizers from uh, Chicago boys to uh, privatize the economy. And they've done that into other countries. And this uh, issue of Supporting apartheid, I think, is important in the history of, of the AFL-CIO because the AFL-CIO offered a, a million dollars to uh, through the CIA to Lazy, Chief Boothelazy, who was a who was against the a socialist South Africa. He was against he was against the unions, the Kosatu, the democratic unions in South Africa that were forming. In fact, not only was he against them, but he organized thugs to kill trade unions who were on strike. And Lazy's gangs killed one woman that I interviewed. A trade unionist, Jabu Nadlovu, a British uh, company, BART, that was on strike. So British Tires, EAT. And so this role of the AFL-CIO is is really pernicious. And again, there are crimes that have been committed by the AFL-CIO in the name of labor. And that's one of the reasons we have to educate uh, trade unions about that and make the AFL-CIO accountable. Now, I wanna get into what's going on now in Latin America because this is of great importance. One of the things that the AFL-CIO has done through the Solidarity Center is to say that they support democratic unions and they basically fund and support pro-capitalist type unions. By capitalist, I mean unions that don't challenge US imperialism, don't are not challenging the, so, the social system of capitalism. And in Mexico, as many people know, the unions have been controlled by CTM, which is a corrupt uh, federation, labor federation, uh, with links to the government. And they've crushed, murdered, killed uh, trade unions who are independent. Now, what, hap- what has happened in Ford, and maybe we can talk about that later, is that the Ford plant was uh, led by a um, militant a revolutionary group of workers, and the CIA with uh, the AFL-CIO sent some goons in to uh, attack the union, and this was organized and attack and led to uh, uh, injuries of workers and the death of a Ford worker. And this uh, murder is important to understand because it's a concrete role of the AFL-CIO working with U.S. multinationals to suppress workers who are organizing, and that was covered up. and. But however, there's, a, there's an important book, which everyone should get, El Gope, US Labor, the CIA, and the coup at the Ford in Mexico uh, by Rob McKenzie, which uh, is about what happened at Ford in Mexico. And we at our organization are trying to raise that and support it. And, but one of the things that is going on now is that the United States, of course, supported NAFTA. And the, um, while the unions were opposed to it, and Clinton pushed it through, with the support of the Republicans, and it privatized the wealth of Mexico. And much of the wealth of Mexico has been taken over by U.S. billionaires, multinationals, the uh, mines, the airlines, telecom. And this privatization of the wealth of Mexico is a policy of U.S. imperialism, supported by the AFL-CIO, and the recent U.S. MCA, U.S.-Mexico-Canadian Trade Agreement, was a continuation and and by steroids, of the NAFTA. And although there was opposition to it in the unions, and it was fought for by Trump, the, the AFL-CIO supported it. Trump got supported it. And we even was even brought up in the AFL-CIO Labor Council in San Francisco, and the bureaucrats attacked this guy, Alan Benjamin, who opposed it on the floor, and they pushed a pro-imperialist trade agreement. Now, what is going on in Mexico? Well, we have recently learned that the AFL-CIO is now spending $120 million in Mexico for democracy. And what does that mean? They've had some elections and they did support the election of a union in Mexico, the General Motors workers, which was successful. Uh, it was an opposition union. And in fact, a previous speaker in this um, study group, uh, David Bacon, in his report at this meeting said that he wanted to go there and participate in the elections of uh, as an observer, and to see that they were run properly. And he was prevented from doing that by the Mexican government. They wouldn't allow him to go to Mexico. Well, my view is, uh, it's a question. Do we want to be supported by the U.S. government financially to go intervene in Mexico to make sure that the Mexicans have fair elections? It's a question, because the United States' intentions, uh, U.S. imperialism intentions in Mexico, is to under the facade of uh, democracy in the unions, is actually supporting pro-corporate unions in Mexico. They don't want left unions, communist unions, socialist unions, and it's part of U.S. imperialism's policy. Another example of that in Mexico is the struggle of the farm workers at Driscoll's, where basically the ajitos were privatized under NAFTA. Uh, The indigenous people were forced out, came to the United States These farm workers, and then were kicked back into Mexico. And now they're fighting for a union. And you have slave labor, $12 a day. In Mexico, you have a very bad condition in the Baja. Now the AFL-CIO is actively involved in Baja supporting a union. There was a split in the union that doesn't want to talk about Driscoll's or slave labor. So they're intervening in that situation, maybe doing good work talking about the conditions, but they really don't talk about U.S. multinationals role. And the other area is in uh, Colombia, where the AFL-CIO Solidarity Center has an operation doing supposedly good work, but they failed to report that the injured GM workers in Colombia and Bogotá had a encampment outside the Bogotá embassy for 11 years fighting for their rights. That has never been reported by the Solidarity Center. So basically, I think our view is that uh, the way to build solidarity with workers around the world is direct links. By workers, uh, auto workers with auto workers in Mexico and uh, Brazil, and fighting these multinationals internationally. That is the way you fight for real solidarity, not by taking what is seventy-five million dollars a year from the U.S. government. We went to the AFL-CIO convention and passed out a flyer. We have a resolution, uh, which I can put a link to. You can get it on our website, calling for opening the books of the AFL-CIO, what what they're really doing, and also rejecting. The $75 million U.S. funding of the international operations of the AFL-CIO. That is critical because while they say that they're for an independent labor movement, you can't be for an independent labor movement when you're taking millions from the U.S. government. Uh, In fact, the budget of the Solidarity Center is almost as large as the budget of the staff of the AFL-CIO. So here you have a Trading Federations, whose budget for staff on its international operations is almost as large as its national budget, and it's funded by the U.S. government. Why would this imperialist government fund the AFL-CIO if it was really fighting multinationals around the world? The reality it is not, and that's why they continue to fund it. So, what we are fighting for is opening the books, as I said. We're fighting for direct links with workers around the world, and. One of the events that we're going to be having is on September the 11th, we're going to be having a panel on the Chilean coup, remembering September 11th, the coup in Chile, the role of the AFL-CIO, and also the role of the AFL-CIO in Mexico and Colombia. Frank Hammer's is going to be speaking at that. So I think uh, this is critical. And I want to end by uh, talking about the role of the AFL-CIO relationship to Israel, because there's been a fight to support Palestinian trade unionists um, and workers in, in, uh, in Palestine. And the AFL-CIO, not only Richard Trumka, but Liz Schuler, put out a bulletin saying you cannot discuss uh, support for the Palestinian workers because they are against the boycott of Israel, and they are aligned with the HISTED group, the Israeli trading federation. So in San Francisco Labor Council, the bureaucrats use that cudgel to say we can't even discuss the issue of Palestine and Palestinian workers unless... We get approval from the AFL-CIO. So the bureaucrats are crushing a debate even within the labor movement on these issues because they don't want this history and they don't want the real role to be exposed. And I think that that is a political task that workers, militants, tradingists, socialists have to take up within the labor movement. And our organization is is doing that. And uh, we urge you to take a look at our website. And this website that we've developed actually it covers countries all over the world as articles. It's the, portal, it's the main portal in the world to find out what the AFL-CIO is doing internationally. There's no other place where you can get all this information. And that, that in itself is a resource for working people in the United States and working people internationally. So that's my contribution. Thank you, brothers and sisters.
0: That was labor journalist Steve Zeitzer and before him, Professor Kim Sipes. Both are organizers with LAPAL, the Labor Education Project on AFL-CIO International Operations, a new independent organization which wants the AFL-CIO to stop taking funding from the government-affiliated National Endowment for Democracy, which is implicated in destabilization of governments and workers' rights around the globe. This is On the Ground... I'm Esther Aviram with our special show for Labor Day. We'll be right back with voices of Amazon workers. Stay with us.
6: Back when Eisenhower was the president, golf courses is where most of his time was spent. So I never really listened to what the president said because in general, I believed that the general was politically dead. But he always seemed to know when the muscles were about to be flexed. I remember him saying something, mumbling something about a military-industrial complex. Americans no longer fight to keep their shores safe, just to keep the jobs going in the arms-making workplace. And then they pretend to be gripped by some sort of political reflex, because all they're doing is paying dues to the military-industrial complex. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. Military. The military and the monetary get together whenever they think it's necessary. They turn our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning the planet to a cemetery. The military and the monetary use the media as intermediaries. They are determined to keep the citizens secondary. They make so many decisions. that are arbitrary. We're marching behind the commander-in-chief who was standing under a spotlight shaking like a leaf. The triple state had landed on an economic reef, so we knew he was going to bring us messages of grief. The military and the monetary were shielded by January and were storming into February. Brought us pot-bellied generals as luminaries. Two weeks ago, I hadn't heard the sumbitch. Now all of a sudden, he's legendary. They took the honor from the honorary. They took the dignity from the dignitaries. They took the secrets from the secretary, but they left the bitch an
7: obituary. I saw an employee that um, was driving this 8,000-pound piece of equipment and he was struggling to get the harness on. On break, he was sitting down and I went over and I said, hi, is, you know, how are you feeling today? And he said, I'm okay. And he had a little bit of a slurred speech. So he started to tell me how, sorry, he suffered a stroke in the warehouse on Thanksgiving. I couldn't believe that there was no support for him. Nobody seemed to care, and he came right back to operate that piece of machinery that he suffered a stroke on. So at that moment, everything changed for me. The injuries are on a daily basis.
3: Injuries are so common. I don't know how many people have left in ambulances.
7: I am what they call a picker. I drive a pit machine, which is an 8,000-pound piece of equipment that we take into the aisles and we retrieve items.
4: I am a packer. I make sure that the packages get sent out to dock on time. I am a packer and a slammer. It's at the slam station where it gets the shipping label, and then the slammer weighs the package, puts it on another conveyor where it goes up and around the facility and eventually ends up at the docks.
7: As a picker, I have to retrieve 45 items in uh, an hour. And that includes all of those heavy, heavy pieces of equipment, auto equipment, dressers, um, you know, fireplaces, <laughs> vacuums, air conditioners, you name it.
4: Quota, quota, make sure we get the priorities out. The
7: injuries are definitely affected by these quotas and by the stress.
3: We're moving boxes that are, you know, teeny tiny little things up to supposedly 50 pounds, but I can't tell you how many countless times I've had to lift boxes 60, 70, 80 pounds. As I was
7: driving this 8,000 pound piece of equipment to retrieve items, I noticed that there was wires. Um, you know, metal wires sticking out in what we call the very narrow aisles. So, I may lean to the side to see if I can get a better visual. However, that better visual could result in this wire taking my eye out. Look at the boxes protruding out of the aisles and the condition of the boxes because the aisles are so narrow. The shelves are overstuffed to the point where there are shelves that are collapsing. Items that are falling off the shelves onto employees at at, I believe
0: it's up to 28 feet.
4: I started September 13th by the end of October. I was in the emergency room. I literally fell on the floor one day. I could not stand up, I could not stand up straight, I, I just was laying there in severe pain. Somebody said go get Amcare, Amcare walks down about 10 minutes later without a wheelchair. I drove myself to the ER and did find out that I did have a hernia and had to have surgery.
3: One of the women in, in, in the facility had a, a, a severe head injury that she had to be carried out in an ambulance. I would drive home from work and I would have to sit in my
4: car for a minute and sometimes literally lift my legs up and like lift my legs out of the car because I just couldn't move them. They just wouldn't work. And just walking up the stairs, it it was constant pain, absolutely constant, constant
3: pain. You know, I use my legs all the time to lift I go home with bruises on my thighs. It looks like I've been beaten.
7: We've had over 100 EMS responses to the building and a majority is dehydration or employees passing out because they're afraid if you drink more water then you go to the bathroom. If you go to the bathroom then you're going to be written up for time off task.
4: You can get extremely hot in there. It can get you can usually feel like it's somewhere around 80-90 degrees.
7: When I came back from COVID after three weeks and I was staring at a sign that said, no more COVID pay, no excuses. I literally thought I was being punked. HR was serious as could be and said, we're not paying COVID anymore i called the new york state department of health confirmed yep they are going to get their COVID pay and that was when i went into into battle (laughs) that's when i went into battle and i started building the arsenal and my arsenal i knew had to protect these
4: people i want to see that people are cared about that is my biggest thing i i get upset when i'm walking down and i i feel like these people feel oppressed
7: These people are my family, so now the fight is for them and for us.
0: And those Amazon workers in Albany, New York, will have the last word on this Labor Day special. They are organizing with the Amazon Labor Union and were interviewed in early August by the news organization More Perfect Union which reported that Amazon responded to the Union Drive in Albany, New York, by firing Andre Beaupre, one of the workers featured in the segment. But the Union Drive in Albany continues. We reported at the top of the show that Chris Smalls, president of the Amazon Labor Union, is calling for demonstrations on Monday, September 5th, outside the Manhattan homes of both Howard Schultz CEO of Starbucks, and Jeff Bezos of Amazon. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Ivarum. Our website and archive of all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and patreon.com at Show all of which have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. Or i also link to every show on my Instagram page, which is Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R, underscore Iverum I-V-E-R-E-M. The music we played this hour included Slavery Days by Burning Spear, the work song by Nina Simone, Work for Peace by Gil Scott Heron, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Iverum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On The Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which, you know, is on Thank you.